welcome, welcome, welcome to the first, but definitely not the last, interview podcast on the Philip Duff Show. This time I'm sitting down with none other than my old friend Dan Dunn, the imbiber himself and host of What We're Drinking with Dan Dunn. One of the best podcasts you can listen to, one of the best follows on Instagram and Twitter. He's the Sandra Bullock of the Tales of the Cocktail Spirited Awards. I've invited everybody to Lisbon on this podcast. I also fucked up. I described my friend, the esteemed actress, Geraldine Hughes as Geraldine Connolly. Her name is not Geraldine Connolly, of course. That's the name of somebody I went to school with. We also drink a bit of Geneva on this. We mix it with H. Joseph Ehrman's excellent fresh Victor cocktail mixes, which you should totally try and pick up. And as a cameo role for Ted Hay, God bless him. So enjoy everybody. Good. All right. Yeah. Okay, so ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, people of indeterminate gender, welcome to the Philip Duff Show. I'm delighted to have as my first proper sit down, get blasted and shake our old man fists at the sky guest. Nobody less than my old friend Dan Dunn. The very first time I ever met Dan, we got absolutely obliterated at his house in Los Angeles. And we're going to do that again now. Just, you know, obviously on Zoom, because that's that's how things roll in 2022. For people who don't know him, Dan is the host of What We're Drinking with Dan Dunn, the award-winning podcast. You'll also have seen him on Adam Carolla's show, which gets uh, massive respect, almost as much as Dan used to get when he was writing for publications like Playboy, Rob Reports, uh, Roving Reporter for Whiskey X. He's the author of American Wino and Living Loaded, and you can find him online at The Imbiber on Twitter and Instagram. And the What We're Drinking with Dan Dunn podcast is at WWD underscore podcast. Dan, welcome, mate. Quite an introduction there, man. <laughs> I I polished off half this bottle of old of uh, of old Duff while I was listening to it. No, I appreciate it. Speaking By the way, drinks. man, good stuff. Look at this. I have a collector's edition bottle right here that you gave me a long time ago. Batch and number one. I only have uh, about one more sip left in the bottle. For the younger so viewers, I... uh, bottles like this was what we had before NFTs. We had like, yeah, actual exactly. bottles. <laughs> now so, you cheers, can. Cheers, man. Now you cheers, man. I, I'm doing it. I, this it's actually absolutely delicious drink. It's it's the uh, it's the old Duff, real Dutch Geneva single malt with our friend H Joseph Airman's company Fresh Victor. Giving him a little shameless uh, plug here. The cucumber and lime cocktail mixer. These are all natural. They're great. This with the old Duff could drink that seven days a week and twice on Sunday. Now, there's an endorsement coming from Mr. Don himself. I'll have to look it up here in New York, because I'm lucky. Uh, the, when they just created Fresh Victor, me and H were judging the American Distilling Institute Awards in San Francisco, out in Tiburon. And he brought in everything after all the judging was over for us to try. So I got to try them. I'm like, fuck, this is good. And I was not prepared for it to be good. They had a, uh, they hit at the right time. They came out with these in, during the height of the pandemic where people were holed up at home and a lot of people wanted to have good cocktails. They maybe didn't want to go out shopping to get, you know, cucumber or lime or jalapeno or all the pomegranate, all these other ingredients they had. And uh, they hit at the right time. Now, I, I wonder how that's going to go in a, if there's such thing as a post uh, pandemic world, whatever amounts to that right now, where people are getting back out again. I don't know. But it's it's really good stuff, and 
obviously the old Duff is uh, is fantastic as well. Everything just cries out for the addition of Geneva. But yeah, I mean, I'm going to tell you something that's going to blow your fucking mind. I flew on a plane yesterday without a mask. <laughs> and it was wild. I wasn't even like duct taped to the seat or anything like that. You know, there was no marshals waiting to pick me up when the plane touched down. It was weird. I got to tell you. Now, I don't know when this shows, this episode's going to go up. But I, and I, I don't know how I, what I'm going to do the next time I fly, which will be soon. Um, the only part that I think I can cuss on this show, of course. Yeah. Fuck. Yeah. Yeah. The only part that's fucked up was when they, when the announcement came through, it was a surprise, right? This judge just unilaterally said no, which I have lots of feelings about that, but I won't share them here. We don't want to get too political. But what I will say that I thought was fucked up was apparently on numerous flights, word came down and pilots came on mid-flight and said to people, you can now take your masks off if you'd like. Now, come on. Wait till the fucking flight lands. There might be people on that plane that are, you know, that have terminal cancer or just they they didn't get a choice. Now you have a choice. Now, you know, if you get on a plane, there are going to be a lot of people without masks and you can make a decision about your own health, about whether you want to do that. To make the announcement mid-flight, I, I had a friend that was on a flight when that happened, and he said it was kind of screwed up because people were like glaring at each other because a bunch of people made a show of taking their masks off and cheering, and then there were like old people that were looked like they were freaking out. Just what's with this society, Phil? We can't wait. You can't wait an hour till you land before you do it. It's you just, can't it, take that. Yeah, it's just it everything's is. It is very politicized. At the other end of the spectrum, there's a friend of mine, Geraldine Connolly. She's a very famous actress. And she was filming uh, Your Honor. You know the Netflix series with Brian Cranston? Of course. Yeah, so it was the first production, really, in New Orleans after the first shutdown. So it was like October 2020. And they are... They got social distancing and safety and everything. And she's staying in an apartment. She's being shuttled to the set. She's... You know, doing her own makeup. It's a sterile thing. And the only thing she could do, by way of a little bit of entertainment, was walk around in the evening after they were done, around the French Quarter in New Orleans. And she is a small lady, by the way, just for context. She got yelled at. Somebody grabbed her and tried to rip her mask off. Uh, People would like, she'd be walking along and cars would keep pace, yelling out at her, you know, this is Trump country and shit like that. So... Everybody on every side of the agreement went a little bit bananas. My Facebook memories popped up. Exactly two years ago, I was bleaching my carrots after I got them home from the grocery store. You know? And I was disinfecting oh, yeah. internally with Tanqueray. So. <laughs> I, I said to a friend the other day, boy, there are so many things that I'm already missing about lockdown. And I know that sounds crazy, but Looking back on it, I kind of look back on it fondly. What <laughs> was your have... highlight reel? What was your highlight reel for? I just uh... liked <laughs> not having to do anything. You know, <clears throat> now my, you and I talked before we got on the air, you know, now my schedule is I've got to go back to New York. I'm going to Chicago. I'm going here, there, the other place. And, and don't get me wrong. I, ultimately I am embracing getting back out into the world, but it's kind of exhausting a little bit. 
Yeah, I liked, I liked waking up knowing I didn't have to do anything and having no idea when I was going to have to do anything again. Yeah, I mean, some motherfuckers, like, they learned a language, they became photographers, they did college degrees. All I did was create more empty bottles for the recycling bin in my apartment <laughs> building. No, I, I was I was productive during COVID. I, I would like to, I wrote a screenplay that got optioned. I bought a Peloton and I was hitting that thing every day. I was, um, you know, I got <clears throat> laid. A few times, uh, I was I was very active on the on the COVID dating front, which was interesting. I read a ton of books. I watched ninety five thousand hours of television and movies. Um, I felt like I I was living my best COVID life. Imagine it's kind of like being retired, you know, like you just stay home or or in a very fancy prison cell. But I also recognize that the loneliness had it continued that was paying a toll. Like, so for instance, I, one of the gigs that I had during the, you know, the, the meat of the pandemic was um, I was hosting a weekly thing for Flaviar, the club drinking club called nightcap live. And it was a, an hour a week, usually on Thursdays. I think we did it. And Flaviar members could join in and there'd be hundreds of them in there. And I'd have a guest, usually a, a few guests, like a celebrity and then somebody from the industry, whoever was sponsoring that episode generally. And it was both, I guess, a warm feeling, but also sad how much I started to look forward to that because that was my contact with the world. I still remember a lot of the people's names, the Flaviar members, who I'm never going to meet, probably, you know, but I would see them because I would interact with them on Zoom. We do Q&A at the end and and I and they kind of became my friends because <laughs> there was a lot of repeat people that would be there every week. And it sort of became our community. And man, I remember a couple of times like we didn't do it and I was I'd get really lonely. I'm like, man, we're not doing Nightcap Live this week. What am I going to do? Yeah. So I don't know. I'm glad I'm, I'm happy to be back out in the world. I mean, I've seen you numerous times in New York city during the several false alarm endings of COVID. Did you notice by the way, Philip, that when I would come to New York, it would always be the end of COVID. Oh yeah. And I would do my show at the stand and then COVID would come right back. Like, all right, no, fuck this. We're not done yet. I mean, there's people as soon as the mass mandate was overturned on Tuesday, Social media flooded with people who apparently used the last two years to qualify as epidemiologists. Mm -hmm. And they're all like, too soon. No, bad idea. And it's like, okay, I get that you might not like the decision and all that. Everyone's got an opinion, but not every opinion is equal. <laughs> like, <Yeah. laughs> if you if you qualified in epidemiology, I'm going to listen to you more than the person who normally writes about wine. You know? <laughs> or, exactly. Or, or, or the guy who's written a book about cats. That, you know, it's that thing as well. Well, here's, how's this for irony, I guess? <clears throat> so we did the we did the first show, live recording of what we're drinking at the stand in June of last year. You were there with your lovely better half. Then we did another one, and that was when COVID was ending. Mm -hmm. But then Delta came along and had other ideas. And then we're right back in it. So then the fall rolls around November of this past November, 
And looks like we're out of the woods again. Come back to New York, do the show. You were also at that show. Thank you for coming. And uh, and you and Elaine. And then almost immediately afterwards, Omicron was like, hey, no, 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 we're not done. So I just did the show at the end of March. Again, unfortunately, you were not able to be there. Maybe this had something to do with it. I don't know. And I talked about this very thing up on stage. And I assured everyone, I said, this time, I'm convinced it's really gone. Okay. Guess what I got in New York City? I don't know, Don. Was it COVID? COVID. <laughs> <laughs> I and I started feeling like shit actually on the plane home. Sorry to oh. anybody that was on that plane with me. I did it. So I'm I mean, it hit me hard on the plane. And I'm like, what's going on? Got home, tested positive, COVID. And it I'm vaxxed i'm boosted thank god because it kicked the shit out of me at 103 degree fever the next day 1.2 was my fever and i had a cough that i couldn't kick for, and i had to go my doctor had to prescribe so anyway i don't know though i think maybe getting it i feel like somehow i, I don't know i'm just grasping at straws make it go away phil make it go away yeah, but we're uh, like doing, it'll be human sacrifices next. Like if you were thinking, well, this is definitely the end because Duff isn't here. I was in Charleston having a lovely time. But, you know, and then you get, I've got friends have had it twice. In a couple of weeks, I'm going to be at Tel Aviv Cocktail Week, which is unsurprisingly in Tel Aviv. And everyone's on their fourth booster there. And I'm looking forward to talking to the people. And I'm like, okay, look, I know you're very observant of laws. They're being quite a lot of Jewish people there. But like, what's your line? Is it five boosters? Is it six? Like when well, what, I, what I'm hearing though is supposedly the fourth or the second booster. I mean, that's what my doctor told me might be the last one you need. I don't know if I buy that, but because I was going to get my, I'm, I'm actually could get my second booster. I can't now because I just had COVID. So now I have to wait 30 days, but my doctor said, wait longer because now I've got the antibodies. Hmm. He just, he said, wait, if you can wait, six months and then get the next one you know listen I, I, as i mentioned i did not qualify in epidemiology in the last two years and i still believe in science i'm gonna do what looks like reasonable but i think it's gonna it's gonna wind up being like a cold yeah. right it's gonna be like a season it's gonna be a COVID season and in 20 years from now we'll be the old people at the family reunions or in dive bars and We'll be like yelling at people like, wash your hands. And everyone will be like, why is Dan so weird? It's like he, he had a bad experience a few years ago. Just wash your hands. Just keep him happy. Like He's, he's a survivor. We'll all be, be survivors. We'll there's going to be a generation of kids who grow up and they have I, no idea what COVID was. They no. No clue. No memory. But then there's a whole generation of kids that for their formative years had masks on for two years. You know, and they're like, what, you know, what's going on? But I'm sure people don't want to hear us talk about COVID. What you, should we talk about the traffic in LA or what else? Uh, yeah, no. So my nephew is trans, right? And I really wanted to talk about that. No, actually, the reason was you and me were chatting. And I mean, what's a good sort of generalization about uh, what we were talking about? Bartender training, was it? <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, <laughs> that was what got it started was you and I were both commented on a and i don't want to get myself in trouble i'll get you in trouble but not me um one of our friends in the industry um posted something about uh what was the gist of it was 
there was they they reposted an article that said are the liquor companies valuing influencers over bartenders a fair comment right yeah and then but then there were comments about how what the liquor companies should really be doing is investing in training bartenders and people to raise their social media profile and blah 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 and as i pointed out first of all that ship sailed about 15 years ago like if you don't you know why would liquor companies invest in teaching some 45 year old bartender no offense uh to any of the 45 year old but how to use instagram when there's an a, a, a innumerable amount of people already out there that they can go to to sell to push their products all they got to do is pick up the phone and say what's your rate you know uh you don't and, and it also the idea that somehow if they just taught you you'd become famous that if that it. was the case, then everybody would be famous on the internet. One-hour one class, and Joe Rogan can just go sit. That's it. You're an right? influence. You're Kim Kardashian. Just <laughs> you know. So, I it just didn't make a lot of sense. But the bigger thing that made no sense was commenting in the first place, because as you and I both know, I don't know that it, maybe it's never happened in the history of social media. But you just simply can't. There's never a time where on social media they go, you know what, you're right. It's That's the worst point. thing. You and, won and, the argument. And everyone's everyone's <laughs> doesn't bad. matter what you say. Everyone's bad at it. And the thing is, it's a ghost conversation because you think you're communicating with the people there, but there's loads of people there who are looking at that and saying, fuck no, I'm not commenting. And then the idiots comment. Right? And then yep. you'll ask somebody a question and they'll just, you know, well, I'm not gonna answer that because it's gonna make me look like an idiot. So they retreat as well. So it's almost like a, a load of AI bots arguing about, you yeah. know, who's got the bigger one. But I mean, the training thing, the joke was, uh, for anyone watching who doesn't know, for about nine years, I was an education director for the world's largest cocktail festival, Tales the Cocktail. Seminars went from being 30 a year to almost 90 by the end. And it became kind of an in-joke with us. Whenever there was a controversy in the world of spirits and cocktails, whatever it might be, this call would go up on Facebook or Instagram or Twitter, even back in the day. It'd be like, oh, we must have a seminar about this at Tales. Because that would solve it, you know? Like, wor yeah. world peace with a seminar at Tales. Because in the beginning, seminars did actually fix stuff. Because we didn't, the internet wasn't, you know, universal. We didn't have all the bar shows. We didn't have all the books. And a seminar would be a really great way to learn how to make, you know, these particular classic cocktails or use this bit of equipment. But pretty much now, everyone knows everything. We just go to the seminars to hang out, largely. Or you go there, as uh, our mutual friend Eric Alperin once said, I was on a panel with him in LA, and just before he went on stage, he said, you know what, there's a few people here who want to learn, but most of them just want to see the monkeys in the cage. Yeah. I want the free drinks. That's the only reason I ever went to seminars at Tales. I'm like, what are they serving? All right. They're serving a load of bullshit and some rum and Cokes. All right, I'll do the rum and Cokes. Um, yeah, here's the other thing to that point, though. Be seminars versus the internet. No one goes on social media to learn any... No one's going on social media to have their minds changed, okay? Oh. Everybody's got an agenda. So what I found, too, and this has happened to you, I've seen it happen to you, and it's happened to me on certain things that I've unfortunately gotten myself sucked into ultimately then what happens is the argument becomes about nothing the original argument gets lost 
And in, in the one in question that we were just talking about, I kept trying to steer it back to that. I kept going, I'm only commenting on her original point that that brands should invest money in training bartenders how to use social media instead of just paying people who already have huge social media followings to get their brand message out. On its surface, anybody listening right now knows it doesn't make any sense. They're never going to do that, right? Ultimately, people started commenting about, you know, injustices in the cocktail world and and cisgender males dominating and, and race came into it and gender equality came into it. And I'm like, I'm not talking about any of this fucking shit that you're now trying to drag me into. And I'm not going to do it because I learned my I've learned my lesson on that front. If anybody starts going there, I just go, you win. I, you're right. I should shut up. I mean, yeah. this reminds me of something that happened uh, the other day. I was in a car with uh, a young lady that I know, my wife, my stepdaughter, and uh, this young lady, she's 37, right? She's not that young. She's born and raised New Yorker. And somehow we, we were talking about uh, the deaf community. Oh, yeah. And you know what it was? What? There's, there's Excuse a well, me? There's a well-known... What did you say? Yeah. There's a, a well-known... Too soon? Too soon? I don't say. Now, there's a well-known podcaster called Bridget Fetacy. She lives in L.A., and she's about to have a baby. And she said, look, you haven't lived till you've gone to a two hour, you know, pregnancy training uh, class in a Los Angeles hospital. And they don't use the word woman or mother. Right. Which is a thing. But apparently what was new to me, they also don't use the word deaf. Right. They say something like hearing impaired. So I'm discussing this, you know, we're driving home from a family thing. And we're talking about the fact in the deaf community, there's a lot of people who don't want their kids to not be deaf. There's like deaf people, they, they feel it's the whole thing and they wouldn't get the kids like the implants and shit like that. And I'm like, okay. And then this young lady, she says, you know, there's a lot of deaf people who say that being deaf is a blessing. And I'm like, well, you can have a great life if you're deaf, but a blessing? Like the, the fact that you even say that is bananas as far as I'm concerned. I, I, I don't know. Okay, let me let me put it to you this way. My father, uh, as I'm sure you're well aware, having read American Wino, my book, Phil. Cover uh, to cover, Amazon. My dad lost his arm. I didn't know that. And my dad was an alcoholic. He is an alcoholic. He's recovered alcoholic, recovering. I mean, he hasn't drank in almost 40 years. Um, he was a drinker. And he was drinking on the job while driving a cement truck, had a hideous accident that he should have died, fell 90 feet from a bridge, landed in a creek. Um, but he lived, but he lost his arm. Now, I can look at that, and I think he would agree, is losing his arm, having one arm versus two, is a blessing for him because he turned his life around. He was going to, you know, he was killing himself with two arms. I'm just saying sometimes you can look at these things and think now, if someone was born deaf to you and I, it might not be a blessing, but we don't know what their existence is like. And, and maybe they, I'm sure they, obviously they perceive things differently than us. They feel things differently. They have other senses that are probably so much more finely attuned to the world. So I can't, I wouldn't argue that point. I don't, because I simply don't know I'm not deaf. And I, and, it, and it's not for me to say, your life shittier than mine because you can't hear. 
because they don't know. They've never known any better. And then I also think, again, in the case of my dad, where something that on the surface would seem to be a, a terrible thing that has befallen someone turns out to, in fact, be a blessing because it was it was that thing that you wouldn't wish on anybody else that ultimately probably ended up saving that person's life, you know? Uh, and you hear stories about that, you know, beyond my dad. I mean, I, I, I can think of a bunch of different examples of people that have had undergone traumatic experiences that ended up turning their life around for the better. And yet they're still, you know, whether they're in a wheelchair or they've lost a limb or they've lost a loved one or whatever it is. So I don't know. One person's, one person's calamity is another person's blessing. Well, if you're, if you're, if you're deaf from birth, you've got no idea what you're missing. So you're perfectly happy. Same is true if you're blind or you've got anosmia, you can't smell, right? But imagine if you lost your sight, you had your sight and you lost it. That'd be fucking yeah. devastating. I, f I don't think many of those people consider it a blessing. No, I, I, yes, I think that would be the hardest thing. Mm -hmm. You know, losing like we, we, your sight if you had it and, um, or lose, losing your hearing if you had it. By the way, like, I've had an, have you ever had so much old duff that you're like, wait, I'm going blind? Has that ever happened to you before? No, it's because we don't actually make it out of uh, wood alcohol, the kind of stuff that, you know, they uh, they drink in the backwoods of uh, rural rural places. We make it from actual grain alcohol. <laughs> I do. What I love about Geneva is that people, you know, when you talk about gin, I mean, Geneva is the original gin, right? Well, it's even more original than that. Just to tie it in, and this is the sake of a lifestyle, it was the favorite drink of well-known blind man, Ray Charles. Did you know that? Geneva was? Yeah, did you? You, Of course, you saw Ray with Jamie Foxx. Yes. In fact, didn't he get the Oscar? Our, By the way, at our show in New York, my friend Harry Lennox sat right behind you at the show, and Harry played Ray's manager. Are you fucking movie. kidding me? Remember Harry was sitting behind you at the show, and he had the Fuck. drunk friend that was heckling me? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Harry Fuck was. Me. Harry was Ray's manager in the movie. Yeah, so, he was so, the one that comes in later that they yeah. all are very suspicious of because he's trying to take Ray to the next level. Kind of shady. Was that he was doing the announcements like on stage, like Guten Abend Berlin? Was he that guy or no? I don't remember that. <laughs> you know, I mean, you met him at the show. He was right. there. Yeah, no. Yeah. Well, so here's the deal. Uh, obviously, Ray Charles, very important to the conversation, blind. But I think he was he was pretty much blind from birth. He lost his sight. <coughs> uh, he lost it when he was about five years old. Yeah. 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 And, it, you know, his mother prepared him. But anyway, he got a real taste for Geneva when he was touring because Holland wasn't his mad for jazz, right? And he was the hot shit. So for his whole life, even after he gave up drinking, Geneva, or as he called it, Dutch gin, was on his uh, dressing room rider. And his pre-show ritual was... He'd get uh, half a cup of coffee, pour in a big slug of Geneva, drink it, pour in a bit more Geneva, drink that, and pour in a bit more until he could see the bottom of the cup. It's called the silver coin ritual. They do it for Aquavit as well. And he would gargle with it. And this ritual continued even after he had given up alcohol. And in the movie Ray with Jamie Foxx, there's a scene where his mistress tries to tempt him away from his family on uh, Christmas Eve. So, side note... That was a ballsy woman. Anyway, they're about to film it. And you know Ted Hay? Yeah. Yeah, so Ted was, he's Mr. Hollywood, is the guy behind the, the visual uh, stylings of 
Boardwalk Empire, Lemony Snicket and all that. And he's down there and the advisor on the movie where it's being filmed in New Orleans is Ray's son. And Ted's like, was he really into Geneva? And Ray's son is like, yeah. So they were just going to use a generic glass bottle. No, no. They halted production. Ted, because of course he had a vintage Geneva bottle at his house in LA. He had it FedExed down. So the scene involves his mistress trying to tempt him away with a vintage bottle of Geneva back in the day. Wow. I'm going to have to go back and look at that now. So if you drink Geneva, I'm not saying you're going to become Ray Charles, but (laughs) I mean, I'm not, not saying that either. Yeah. Well, what I love about it is then that, you know, basically the British stole it, shortened the name, right? Kind of like they did this to us with Madonna. English English people took Madonna and they started calling her Madge. And uh, they're they're serial stealers of fun things. That's what they are, the English. I mean, that's a very, very kind and polite way of putting one of the most vicious genocidal nations the world has ever seen. And I only say that as an Irishman, like we got it in the fucking ass. But I lived 17 years in Holland. When it comes to genocide and enslavement and stuff, Holland's got it going on. Oh, yeah. (laughs) They got they got their own point with that. I mean, they were stealing colonies from the Portuguese. It was like one big global game of risk. And what I what I always like to say. Thank God we don't do that in America. No, not in America. America's great. We're just good, benevolent people. If anyone from immigration is listening, I think America's fantastic. Thank you very much. Yeah. <laughs> you're a, uh, you're a citizen, right? Come on. No, fuck no. You're no, not. No. What about marry? You're married to a citizen, American. I am. I am, and therefore I have a green card. But... So they can't kick you out, right? Oh yeah, they can kick me out. They can kick you out. But. Uh... You've got worldwide global tax liability forever if you're a U.S. citizen. And it's not that I earn enough to make t- to pay tax, but, you know, I aspire to one day having it. But no, uh, my my beautiful bride, uh, the flower of Staten Island herself, uh, the kid's about to go off to college and she's always wanted to live somewhere else. So I'm not going to make any fast decisions soon enough. So you, you're saying you might go back to uh, the Netherlands? Oh, fuck no. No, I mean, Holland's great. Uh, we're actually going to live in Portugal for a month in the summer just to get the hang of living in another country. And we'll see. We'll see who we're going to go, you know? I love New York. in Portugal. Uh, Lisbon, right in the middle of town. Oddly enough, uh, for anyone listening, we did not rehearse this, around the corner from where Madonna lives in the Alfama district. Her son is in an elite Portuguese soccer academy. And she lives around the corner from my mate's building. And he sees her, oh, wow. you know, a couple of times a week for soccer. Yeah, so it's this beautiful old uh, building. It's got apartments, it's got a roof terrace where my mate grows kumquats and wormwood. And on the ground floor, you couldn't make this up, there is a gorgeous 10-seat speakeasy called Ulysses. So we might do a couple of little things like that in the month that we're there. Might have to come over and visit. Come over to, what, come, come over to Liz. What month, month is that? Uh, middle of June, middle of July. Anyone <laughs> listening, you're all very welcome to come over. <laughs> Just send me a message. It's no problem. Bring a sleeping bag. We'll be fine. Ready to roll. <laughs> <laughs> yeah that's it's you know and again when we were talking earlier about you know pandemic ending i mean that's the kind of stuff that excites me i just have i'm gearing up mentally because during the pandemic there were moments where i'm like when this is over i am gonna suck the marrow out of light i'm going everywhere and what i realized is one of the things that it did to me was condition me to be home and be here. And I, I almost started having anxiety. I don't know if you experienced that at all about leaving. 
the first couple of times I took a trip, I was like, I don't want to go. I really don't want to go. And then once I would get there, in fact, I think uh, New York, the show that we talked about June of last year, that was the first trip that I took. I, I actually started out in North Carolina and worked my way. I flew to North Carolina, went to a wedding, worked my way up through Virginia, went home to Philadelphia, where I'm from, and then came to New York. And I was so anxious before that trip. And not because I was worried about getting COVID. I'd been vaxxed at that point. It was just, I, it's hard to put my finger on it. It's just, I got, I had become so accustomed to being home and sort of building this cocoon around me, which is what everybody did, that I wasn't sure I was ready to venture back out into the big, bad, scary world. But I tell you, that trip was phenomenal. I had such a, it was amazing. But then I came home and once again, I got back into that, oh, I don't want to go. And the next trip was a little, but now it's getting easier and easier. And I'm really hoping that I'll be able to start doing what you're doing and going abroad and, and really taking some serious trips again. Yeah, I mean, I did trips um, in 2020. We went down to St. Martin a couple of times for vacation. And that was shitty on the American side. Once you got down there, it was so good. Because COVID was the least of their worries. They're still recovering from the hurricane a couple of years ago. Right? The island is empty. You couldn't catch COVID if you wanted to. You know, we were staying in a thousand room resort where there was like 10 other people there. It was absurd. It was like a private island. But last year, uh, the travel, it was still a pain in the ass. I went to London, Leeds, Manchester, Glasgow, Edinburgh, Stockholm, and everywhere you're trying to work out, okay, what's the test I need for the next place? Do they accept it? Uh, When's it going to come back? Because if you're traveling on a Sunday, you got to have the results by friday afternoon and you get into the it was just it's enough stress and like when i'm traveling i take a drink or two as well and every motherfucker keeps emailing me so it's just like ah but it's getting easier i mean unfortunately i've had to put off my trip to uh the ukraine bar show uh which i mean entirely seriously why what's happening over there i don't know if you've heard but there's been a (laughs) bit of a disturbance no i mean there's Dear friends of mine, I go to the show every year, I speak there, I try to invite foreign visitors. In fact, I got Ted Hay to come over to uh, to Kiev a couple of years ago. Um, friends of mine, good friends, friends I was drinking with in New York when they passed through three months ago, and they were mixing cocktails six weeks ago, are sitting behind sandbags with rifles. To say it's fucked up is, is beyond belief. It's, yeah, I kind of, I've got all sorts of ideas to help, uh, help the Ukraine, help Kiev, help the bar community, and also you know heal this hostility towards Russia. Because I can assure you, regular Russian people are not down with this shit either. But none of this matters uh, until the war ends. You know, it's just yeah. posturing otherwise. So it's been a great uh, couple of years, hasn't it? I mean, what's this? We're, 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 on the, we're on the second plague now. Isn't there like five of them? I, I find myself, and I, I hate feeling this way, but I say it <laughs> fairly often to friends that are, you know, similar age to me, which you fit in that category. Is, you know, I just go, oh, was, we had a good run. <laughs> that's honestly what I say to myself. I'm like, the like I had a really, I had a, many good decades, you know, we're none of this shit, man. And now I'm like, all right, I, I'm, and I look forward to having more, but there is a part of me that's in it. And I think the evidence suggests that I might not be wrong that goes, I don't know. 
the best of times might be, (laughs) I might've already had those just because, you know, there's so much other shit coming. So thank God we have bars because it really helps. (laughs) It really does. Hey, by the way, to get off the topic of war. So you're going to be important. Are you not going to tales of the cocktail then? No, we'll get back just in time. I'm definitely going down. It's going to be scaled back, but I would encourage everybody to go down and represent you know, I think I'm gonna go. if you feel happy with it and all that kind of thing. I mean, the bar shows, the first significant one after all this nonsense was last year's Bar Convent Brooklyn in, unsurprisingly, Brooklyn. And okay, there weren't as many exhibitors as I thought, but there was more attendees than I expected. And then about three weeks later, I was at Imbibe in London. And it was like fucking COVID never happened. It was rocking. It was so so fucking cool then there was the the mothership the bar convent berlin in berlin that was brilliant and in a way let's just say that we uh, should be inclusive and we should be nice to all the drinks companies in the world but it's always fun to shit on the big ones right and the diageos and the pernos and all that they agreed their marketing budgets uh, nine months before so they weren't there so it was only the relatively smaller companies that was kind of refreshing uh, sure. There was the Amsterdam Bar Show. So what I'm saying is, all the signs are pretty good. I think it's going to be a reboot of all the cocktail festivals. We're going back to ground one. There's going to be there's entire generations of bartenders. There's people joining the industry now. Those are like people who joined the army during a war. It's like I got a lot of respect for that. I go into a bar now. I used to know every single bartender. Now I just know the bar manager, maybe who used to be the bar back like two years ago. Yeah. And you got like 12 new faces and God bless them. Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm excited for tales because they have a thing down there, as you know, called the spirited awards. It's like the Oscars of the industry. And I think this is the year I lose for the 14th time in a row or do not win anything for the 14th time in a row. Um, do, um, do we need to have a Razzies, right? Like an alternative spirited award. Cause in that case I, you are getting, I'm your- not bitter. I'm not bitter at all. My, um, my podcast, what we're drinking with Dan Dunn, not only is it one of the most listened to drinks podcasts in the world, I've had, as you know, Philip, I've had everybody from the aforementioned Brian Cranston to Steven Soderbergh, Christy Brinkley, Pitbull, Bond, Matthew McConaughey, on and on and on. Everybody from the spirits industry, the biggest distillers in the world, people from the wine industry, very well produced, listened to, and it's never going to win. Somebody that someone down there just doesn't like me, man. Somebody. I don't yeah, know who for, it is. No, for many years it was me, but I can't but take you, any credit anymore. <laughs> the, the culmination was a couple of years ago. You remember my other show, Drinky Fun Time. So R.I.P. Drinky Fun Time. Drinky Fun Time. Gone. And what we're drinking is is a better show than what than Drinky Fun Time. I, I like Drinky Fun Time, but this is a better show. But anyway, Drinky Fun Time was a good show. And they released the 10 finalists for the best podcast. And we weren't on the list. I was kind of surprised. I mean, at that point, I remember that year was our first year. We had had Anthony Bourdain was one of our, we had huge people on the show. And the thing that, but I was fine. I'm not, I don't get too wrapped up in it, even though I'm talking about it right now. Um, but somebody pointed out that one of the podcasts that had made the final 10 I was in this group on Facebook and anybody says, Has anybody ever heard of this show? So we did some investigating. The, the, the podcast that made the 10 finalists 
did one episode in the in the the year qualifying time period. They put out one episode. That it must one episode fucking amazing. That one episode <laughs> came out. I'm not joking you. The first day of qualifying, it just so happened. It only so it was a year had gone by since they'd done anything. It was a 22 minute podcast where some guy that nobody'd ever heard of talked about the drink, the aviation. It sounded like he was talking through a paper cup. It was incredibly put. And I listened to this, and I have to tell you, Philip, the the, the fury because I've been in this industry a long time. You know, I mean, I've was one of the very first people doing this, like, you know, and I, I sat there and I went, what the fuck is this bullshit? Right? Like here we are putting out an episode every week with major stars, major people in the industry, high production value on a major network. And I go, and that was it. I broke. And I, I hit up Neil who had taken over. What's Neil's last name? Bodenheimer. Bodenheimer. They had taken over tails and I just couldn't hold back. And I said, what, I don't care if I ever, I don't care if this pisses you. What the fuck is this? What is this? How did this tell me how this show who no one knows who this person is. And it was just clearly, they just threw a dart at a board and picked it. You know, we need one more podcast to fill it out and we're not going to use his. We're not going to use that one. There were other people. Fred Minnick wasn't nominated that year. There was other people that were big in the booze industry. And of course you could look at the list and go, uh, well, I know who's going to win, you know, because there's, no offense to the tales of the cocktail establishment. I've loved it. I've had amazing times. But you you might not be shocked to know, Philip, that there are certain people that they value more than others down there. No. Um, yes. I was like, they're like, can we give it to David Wondrich and Noah again? Can we? Does Camper English have a podcast? Can we, can we give them one so that we can give them the award? You know. And I was like sitting there going like, this is crazy. I mean, I'll, I'll be the voice of reason here. Uh, not just, I'm not involved with sales anymore. I'm involved with lots of other bar shows and stuff, and I've judged tons of shit. But the problem is, everybody shits on the Michelin Restaurant Awards, but they do do something that, as far as I'm aware, nobody fucking does. They pay people fucking 401ks and salaries and expenses and, you know, all that, who travel around and visit all the places. Yes. Right? Judges at Tales, uh, World's 50 Best Bars. I was briefly the North American lead judge there. Um... You don't get shit. So, you know, who's going to check if you visited that bar? I mean, I love Del McGay, right? It's fantastic. I've been drinking it since the very first day. Still drinking it. Had some last night. And I know Ron Cooper and everyone who helped build it. It's fantastic. And it's got a great home at Pernarikar. But they would produce an extra SKU every single day, every single year. And one time, uh, it had... Made it to the final four. I think it won that year at Tales of the Cocktail. Now, I live in a little village called New York City. And at the time, I was going to 40 countries a year. So, I mean, I would literally... Somebody would send mail to a hotel in London for me. And if I didn't pick it up, I'd be like, oh, it's cool. I'll be back in two weeks. Right? Sure. So I'm, I'm covering all the bases here. And I haven't tasted or seen... Del McGay Iberico, right? With the ham. The ham, the ham. yeah, I've had that one, yeah. Right? So I'm like, okay, look, maybe I'm out of the loop. Right? Old man shaking your fist at the sky. Uh, you know, get off my lawn. So not long after, I was in San Francisco. And we went to ABV, the fantastic bar, ABV, uh, owned and run by Ryan, who used to be the Del McGay ambassador. 
and we had a fantastic time. We drank far more than we should have every time. It's a fantastic bar. And we, between you and me and everyone who's listening, like probably both of the listeners at this stage, uh, we had a lock-in, right? They, they, you know, they threw everyone out. They locked the doors. And Ryan says, hey, we're all going to sit down and we're going to have a shot of this. So I'm there with the great and the good of all the San Francisco bartenders, writers. Camper English was actually there. And he pulls out. I love Camper, by the way. I'm not knocking Camper. He's a friend. and he's No, there are many, talented. many, yes. many reasons to criticize Camper. This is not one. <laughs> <laughs> so Ryan comes over to what I think are the ultimate in people. And he pulls out the bottle and they all go, oh. And it slowly dawned on me they hadn't tasted it either. So there's yeah. no one in New York who's tried it. There's no one in California. How the fuck did this win? Right? Yeah. There's actually a thing now. Again, it's going to sound like I'm the good fairy here. I happen to notice, if you get to like the final 10, or maybe it's five for best new product at Tales this year, you're then going to be asked to mail samples to the judges, which isn't perfect, sure. but it's better than it was. Yeah. And look, my point in bringing up the fact that I haven't won is I'm just letting everybody at Tails know that if I should I be nominated and should I even make it to the final four? Should I even win? I'm saying this now for the first time on your show. I will graciously come up on stage to accept my award and I will tell them to all go fuck themselves. I'm going to say that right there. I'm going to walk up on stage and go, fuck you for giving me this award 10 years to 15 years fucking too late. That's what I'm going to say. I'm not going to do that. You know me. I'll be up there. I'll be crying like a, you know, yeah. <laughs> like a kid that just found out he didn't make the team or something. Yeah, you'll, be, you'll be hugging Neil. It'll be a thing. <laughs> oh my God. I can't believe it. Uh, I don't know. No, you, you'll that. be like Sandra Bullock. Like I think <laughs> she missed out on so many. And she eventually got the Oscar, right? I think maybe for the blind side. And her speech was, did I win or did I just wear you down? Yeah, that's kind of it. I don't even, I don't think I could. Uh, you know, I don't, I went from sort of being this perceived at least as sort of this young punk and they're never going to get, you know, back when I was writing for Playboy. So I was, back then I was like angling. I did get nominated a few times for writing awards, but I never won. And it was like, I get it. You know, they, they were looking for an establishment type people and I wasn't writing that kind of stuff. I didn't hesitate to take the piss out of the brands when I would write. And it's funny to think that I was considered a young because now I'm definitely not that. And I think somewhere I just now I'm probably perceived as like, you know, there's so many people I don't like you said, I don't know anybody anymore. You know, I don't I don't know a lot of the big movers and shakers in the industry. When I when I knew things were changing was a couple of years ago, and I think I might even talk to you about this. They put out some, I guess, influential publication. I don't remember which one it was, but they put out a list of the 50 most important people in the bar industry. And Dale DeGroff, Dale DeGroff, the great Dale DeGroff, the guy who, without whom none of this probably happens, at least in the way that it did in this country, the research, the revival of the craft cocktail scene in America. I would think it's not a stretch to say Dale's certainly one of the top two or three most influential people in that regard. And this list came out, I think he was like 46 on oh, no. the list. Oh, no. It was the top 100. And yeah. it's from the 
the world's 50 best bar people. Yeah. And he was like 73. Yeah. And, and no, and we have other friends and I, and there were a couple that were in the top 10 who are really young and they're great people. And I'm not going to name names, but I just thought even they would say, this is a travesty that I'm ranked higher than Dale DeGroff. And, and I remember like, I, again, got sucked into a debate on Facebook and I said, any list that has Dale, whatever you say, 73 is a fucking joke. This is a joke. This is, this list is, and people came at me like, Oh, you old man, like, you know, your time is come and gone. And I'm like, has it already? Jesus Christ. What happened? Where'd the time go? And maybe they're right. I don't know. Maybe they're right. Maybe our time has come and gone. Yeah, I think it's probably, to some degree, you don't know who built the world that you're in. Yeah. Right? And if you're a 22-year-old bartender now, you don't know who Dale DeGroff is. You don't know who Dick Bradsell was. You don't know who David Embry was. You don't know who Harry Craddock was. You're like, you know, your bar manager is your god. Or the bartender at the slightly better cocktail bar that you sometimes go to is your god. And later on, you realize, oh my God, you know, we're standing on the shoulders of giants here. And some of them are still out there. Like you can go and have a drink with Dale DeGroff. I had many a drink uh, with Dick Bradsell and Sasha Petrasky. And you can go and still have a drink with Jonathan Downey, uh, which is always- Tony, Abuganum and- uh, yeah, even out here you got Vincenzo Marianella, people like that that are that were very instrumental out on this side of the country. Yeah, you're right, they are there. And 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 look, uh, something came up here recently. Again, I live out in Venice. And one of the a bar that's been in quarter century, which isn't long at all, but in Santa Monica though, kind of a dive bar called Rick's, just closed. You know, uh, sort of unceremoniously. Got, and people were going crazy because it's kind of a beloved place over on Main Street in Santa Monica. And I was thinking about it and it kind of dawned on me like, ah, do I really care? Like I'm reached the age of my life. Like, I don't know that I can get too worked up about the fluctuations in the bar scene anymore. Just because like, as long as I got my spots, a couple of spots that I like, you know, I'm not really, I don't really care about what's new and exciting anymore because I'm not new and exciting anymore. And when you go to these places and you look around and everybody's 22, 23, 20, God fucking bless them, man. Like when we started going to tales back in the day, you know, 20 years ago, it was a different world. And I probably, I probably looked at guys like me and was like, man, sucks for them that they missed the boat. You know, like they're, they're not here. This is all happening and look how old they are. So I get it. You know, it's, it's like, it's like with music. Like, I don't want to be that guy either going, man, they haven't made good music. And, you know, I was thinking about that the other day. There was, there was I was looking at an article about Coachella. And I didn't, frankly, I don't, a lot of the acts, I'm like, eh. but then I go, I can't, I can't shit on this because that's what they used to do to us when we were young. Like, I'd sit there and be like, I love this band called REM. And my older friends would be like, what the fuck's that shit, man? Skinnered, you know, Zeppelin. And I loved all those bands too, but like, they're like, what is this crap? You're what's the clash, you know? And you're like, so I don't want to be that guy now going, you know, I don't get this music. Um, but in the bar scene, I don't care too much anymore. I guess even in New York, I see people post stuff all the time. Like, I can't believe it. Cause a lot of places have didn't survive COVID and they went under, but I'm like, we're going to make it folks. They're going to put something else there. <laughs> 
Now, we've just become inured to it, but in terms of uh, staying fresh, I remember being a very young bartender, bartending at this uh, pub in South London, which is very dodgy, like the equivalent of a dodgy pub in Philly. And it was owned by a guy who had been in construction. And Margaret Thatcher had announced she was going to crack down on all the cash payments in construction. So every construction boss's accountant told him to get into pubs, right? So you can you can uh, launder the money much more effectively. So we had a lot of old, sad construction workers drinking in this bar. It was their boss's bar. And they had stories that would blow your fucking mind. They looked like they came off the set of Darby O'Gill and the Little People, right? As extras. <laughs> Like, one of them, he would come in every lunchtime, have his lunch and a glass of milk. And he had been in the Merchant Marine. And I, at the time, was taking vast amounts of ecstasy, right? Amounts that even people who took large amounts thought were ridiculous. And I mentioned it to him one day. And he was like, oh, we had that in the 1960s. And I'm like, what? He got off his boat once in Hong Kong in, like, 1962 and he told me, oh, yeah, you know, we went out, we had some drinks, we met these girls, and we, t- we took some trips. And I kind of worked out it must have been LSD. But I'm looking at this guy, and he looks like, you know, your favorite grandfather. Obviously, he'd alienated his entire family and everyone who knew him decades before. But, like, people have had such amazing lives. I'm not saying anyone oh, should yeah. venerate me or you. Like, fuck us. But... You've got to you've got to see it both ways. You gotta you gotta to listen to the new music, go to the new things, check out, try to see it through fresh eyes, and eventually they are gonna learn. It's like the old joke, you know. When I was fifteen, I thought my dad was an idiot. Uh, when I was twenty five, I couldn't believe how much he'd learned in the past ten years. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. No. And and it, look, it's it's great. I was thinking of that famous quote, you know, that uh, youth is wasted on the young, but it really. I, I think that I'm sometimes I look at it and I try it when I go into different bars and things and I see people and everybody's so young and they're, and I'm just, I'm trying to remember what that was like, like that feeling of just, and I wonder given everything that young people have had to go through in the last couple of years, do they still have that sense of wonderment that we had and that anything is possible because we didn't really have shit we haven't gone through stuff like they've gone through, you know, kids in their teen, late teens and early twenties now that have basically lived through the Trump years followed by COVID now, you know, the war and I'm going, it's been kind of a shit sandwich that these youngsters have had to eat. And we, we kind of got off fairly scot-free and a lot of that was just obliviousness, you know, like we were shielded from, there was horrible shit going on, but we didn't have the internet to remind us of it every day. And, and we didn't, we didn't know, you know, you didn't really know what was happening outside the, the borders of your favorite bars and wherever you were living or so, I don't know. It's um, what was the point? Oh, I need more Geneva. I need more. You do. And I need to wrap it up, but I will say this. Um, one of the did anything things, we say make any sense to it. I don't think it did. We, we rambled, but I the, love it. The transcript I love is good. The if transcript I is going to be amazing. And I'm going to do your podcast, so we'll continue that. Yes. But uh, one thing is, when you've been through uh, a shitty thing, right? Like your dad went through, uh, or indeed, well-known Geneva drinker, uh, Ray Charles. um, Or even, when I moved to Holland, moved to Holland in 95. 
uh, they just ended military service. And the father of one of my colleagues ran the payroll for the bar I worked at. And he said, Philip, they should never have ended military service. And I was, I was ready for like something, oh, you know, makes a man of you. He says, no. When you've spent four hours in a fucking, lying in a wet ditch, right? For the rest of your life, you're never going to complain if the fucking bus is late or the train is delayed or the plane or whatever. So the kids, the, the young people, the younglings, right? Uh, they've been through this shit. So I hope them and us... We're just going to be fucking delighted. Every day you can go out and mask and you don't have to socially distance and you don't have to wash your hands for 20 seconds, although you should. You know, I, I hope that this could unlock, you know, 20, 30 years of, oh my God, I am so glad we have this. Because especially the young people, you know, you're over 10, 12 or whatever, they know what they miss. Like my stepdaughter she was 15 going in she's 17 now what was heartrending was seeing her not being able to see her friends and she knew what she was missing she knew it was important that she couldn't see them so they were on like clubhouse and shit all day long so yeah and they, no but you know look i know maybe it sounds silly to, but it's like you know in the grand scheme of all the terrible shit that went on and all the people that lost their lives but then you look at you look at kids like your like your stepdaughter i mean no prom and I know maybe it seems again trivial, but here I am all these years later. I remember my prom fondly. I remember those big moments in high school. I remember graduation. And I remember these were seminal moments in your life that a lot of kids and kids in college that didn't get to graduate, didn't get to go to junior, senior year, didn't get to interact. I mean, college was fucking great, man. You know, like it was the one, it was the best time of our lives, you know, and, and they didn't get that. So I hope you're right, man. I hope that we get a, uh, I hope the wave is coming. It doesn't feel like it right now because, you know, we've gone from one, one fucking piece of shit situation to the other now with Ukraine and all this, but, and then we got elections coming up, which don't ever, fill me with uh with foreboding but i hope i hope that eventually the pendulum swings back around and maybe we get 10 or 15 20 good years of uh relative peace and prosperity and happiness and you and i'll be sitting in bars at parts unknown without masks on or pants we'll be yelling at one another like no young pants. women will be nice to us because we remind them of their grandfathers. Do you have pants this... on right now? Because we're both I'm... wearing black. We're both wearing black t-shirts. We've coordinated. Uh, are you wearing pants? I am actually wearing pants, but that's only because I'm not an analyst for CNN and I don't write for the New Yorker. If yeah. I did, I would be totally pantless. Hold on, let me hit this. Oh, uh, wait. Please ask the host to give me permission to record. Oh, never mind. Just send me the thing. I will. I was going to say this looks like we've plan this like like we had a designer come in and go we're gonna guys we're gonna go with the black and white motif today so we're gonna both wear black t-shirts which we both have we're gonna have the white backdrop which we both have and we're gonna have the microphone just slightly inside do you do you see the symmetry right here both I wearing do. the same kind and of here's headphones the thing. this is gonna freak everybody out that i'm wearing a t-shirt like it freaked my wife out enough when i started going to uh, New York for three weeks every three weeks to date her even though I was living in Amsterdam I get up in the morning put on my workout gear and go to the gym at 6am and my workout gear freaked her the fuck out like I think without really thinking about it she just assumed I worked out in like a tweed waistcoat and like suit pants so uh, yeah. me wearing a t-shirt is like radical stuff it's just like 
my calm day here. I'm not going out. I'm not seeing anybody. But hey, Dan Don, tell everybody. I know you have a date to get to, and I'm yes. not going to stand between a man and an opportunity. No. So how can everybody find you online? Find you, follow you, like, subscribe, touch your bells yep. and buttons? Yeah, well, the show is called What We're Drinking with Dan Dunn, available everywhere podcast stream. Please subscribe, tell your friends. We've got tons of great guests coming up in the coming. we got uh, Scotty Pippen, former Chicago Bull. we got Stephen Amell, actor from Arrow and a bunch of other great shows. we got uh, tons of great Aaron Paul from Breaking Bad coming on soon. And uh, you can follow me at the imbiber, T-H-E-I-M-B-I-B-E-R at Twitter and Instagram. And, uh, you know, I'll be in uh, New York City, looks like in, if you follow me on the on social media, I'll be posting it. It looks like in May I'm going to be doing another live recording of what we're drinking. And hopefully you will be there, Philip. I would love to see you, of course. For sure. And uh, that's going to be in May sometime. So that's all I got, brother. Beautiful, beautiful. I will definitely be there. The two shows I've been to are amazing. The only reason I wasn't at the last one was I was literally in a different city at, in uh, Folly Beach, Charleston, judging a bartender contest, also without masks. Ah, amazing, beautiful. Uh, so, yeah, please like, subscribe to The Philip Duff Show on YouTube, on Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts, uh, at Philip Duff on Twitter, that's P-H-I-L-I-P-D-U-F-F, at Philip S, for Stephen, Duff on Instagram, that's P-H-I-L-I-P-S-D-U-F-F, and Dan, honestly, it's been a, a pleasure, a privilege, and you know what, we've just got to do this again face-to-face, as good as this is. Soon. And I promise we had nobody in production on my end. This is literally a $90 screen from Wayfair.com. Uh, it was uh, Unfortunately, it was delivered without any trafficked children in the box. I mean, I, I had a really good look. But no, I just got what I ordered, unfortunately. And we'll do that. And we'll get really obliterated. I know you had to stay a little tight because you're going on a date. And be, yeah. When I go on your podcast, uh, that's going to be like version, the sequel to this. We all want to know what happened. Deal? Yes, I will tell you. Promise. Beautiful. All right, man.